This cult at the core of it was about reducing women to sort of tween, adolescent mindset through controlling their eating, controlling their exercise, controlling what they thought about, making them into slaves for Keith, 13-year-olds who were obsessed with Keith. It's Vanessa Grigoriadis today talking about infamous Inside America's Biggest Scandals. Uh, That's her podcast, but she'll be talking about some specific things. She's a really, really top journalist. I'm a huge fan of some of the work she's done. And it's not like a lot of other journalists. Like She really gets into these things. And one of the things I've spoken about a bit on this podcast before, I know a lot of you are interested in cults and things, and we talk about Nixium, which was that sort of Scientology ripoff where they ended up branding people with like iron whatever, uh, with the initials of the of Keith Ranieri, who is the, the leader of it. But also Alison Mack is the uh, actress from Smallville who was like the head of it with him. Really, really crazy cult. But she actually got interviews with both of them. She really got inside them to get get access to them in a way that I haven't heard of almost anyone else doing. So we have a great chat about that. We talk about, as well, Girls Gone Wild, which is a bit culty. I think we got to talk about that in this in this episode. And all sorts of intriguing culty things. You'll see how it all goes. I think it's a good episode, I would say. A very good episode indeed. Do go and listen to Infamous, Inside America's Biggest Scandals, the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts and all that stuff. Follow Vanessa Grigoriadis on Twitter and all that stuff and, and, and enjoy this, of course. I would just say, coming up, next episode, Collier Landry talking about how he woke up in the night to see his father uh, or to hear his father killing his mother. Pretty mad. Teddy Rose then on Saturday talking about his experience in the Moonies cult. That's just behind the paywall. So that's patreon.com slash Andrew Gold and Apple subscribers. You can get it there as well. But now you're on the edge of infamous stuff like Nixium with Vanessa Grigoriadis. Vanessa, how are you doing? Welcome on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. I love what you do. Um, and I'm fascinated, really, because your podcast, Infamous, and your wonderful journalism career, the investigative stuff, it's like what I like to do as well. So I really want to hear about all that stuff today. And I was amazed at the access you got to some of the people in Nixium. Nixium's a cult that I've covered a bit on the podcast, but some people might just be listening now for the first time. I wondered if you might be able to tell us, uh, give us a brief overview of, of what it is. Okay. Uh, well, Nexium, I think we can call it a cult at this point, um, was a, uh, and it's it's sort of out of commission at this point. Um, it was a cult that called itself a self-help group um, based in Albany, New York, which if you know, New York is not a place that you think um, there would be, you know, one of the most sort of significant cults in America based in. Um, And it was started by a man named Keith Ranieri, who, um, you know, touted himself as the world's most ethical man, the world's smartest man, you know, one of the highest IQs in the world, all these things that we later found out were uh, not only not true, but the opposite of true. Yeah, they are a cult, aren't they? Multi-level marketing kind of thing. They, they, did they sort of disguise themselves as a multi-level marketing company? 
Yeah, I mean, I think they were doing, you know, the large group awareness thing, right? The idea of, uh, you know, came out of EST, um, the late 70s group that said, like, let's get everybody in a group and everybody share their trauma. And by hearing everybody else share your their trauma, you'll realize, like, your reaction to your dad dying is not like is not unique. There are so many other people out there who feel the same way. Um, I don't know if it's a coincidence that Est and, you know, Nexium's original name, which was ESP, Executive Success Programs, sound so similar. Um, yeah, I mean, Nexium was actually sort of a, a rebranding name, right, when they wanted to get away from the perception that ESP was a cult. Um, but you would still hear many people in Nexium wouldn't use the word, you know, the the term Nexium. They called it ESP because that's what it had been called for years. Um, so, yeah, they did the large group awareness thing and, and uh, you know, let's get everybody in a seminar room and let's um, uh, have them share. Let's give them a new vocabulary to understand their problems through and um, sort of mess with their sense of reality by keeping them in a room for 12 hours a day, right? Um, and sort of indoctrination. Um, and, you know, I remember when I interviewed Keith Raniere, uh, he said to me, you know, he doesn't believe in brainwashing. There is a thing called, you know, indoctrination. But what is wrongful about my indoctrination? And I mean, I think we learned there was a lot that was wrongful about it. Um, but that was his point. Did you speak to him before he was charged with everything? I did, yes. Um, okay, that's fascinating. So you got in there early, and I guess at that point, he was sort of trying to sell himself as this, yeah, still this guru kind of thing. And it's all come crashing down for him since. Right. So what happened was I was assigned a story by the New York Times Magazine to go um, speak with the group. Um in the fall of 2017. And that was because the Times had run a large story about um, some defectors, including Mark Vicente and Sarah Edmondson from The Vow and Bonnie, um, leaving the group, and that uh, these sort of, you know, semi-forced brandings had occurred. Um, the idea that the branding of the women was by their choice, but also potentially not by their choice. Um, and, um, you know, there was a question of what was going on on a larger level with this group. And so I was, you know, I mean, it's complicated because I think that there's a perception that I was the favored reporter. Uh, of Nexium to speak with them at this time that they were under fire. And in all, uh, you know, negotiations with anyone to speak to a reporter, there is always that element that creeps in, which is, you know, we could go with anybody else. Um, they were talking to a lot of different reporters at that time, um, some very prominent feminist writers who they believed would understand that what they were doing was feminist. Um, and so I was somebody who was brought in at that time by them to talk. But 
they also thought that I was going to write exactly what they wanted me to write, which was never going to be the case. Um, so the reason that they were talking to me, um, and I did know this, uh, was that they were about to be indicted and that Keith was about to be indicted and that Claire was about to be indicted. I didn't know that Allison Mack or the Salzmans were going to be indicted at that point. Um, so I was supposed to go to Albany and talk to all of them. And um, as I was preparing to go to Albany, um, I got a call that I should not go to Albany and that I should go to Mexico because Claire and Keith were in Mexico at that time. You went to Guadalajara, right? Yeah. So they had been in Monterey. Um, and, you know, as people who know a lot about Nexium may know, there were many, many prominent members of Nexium um, who were Mexican. Um, you know, people who were the sons of of the the 1% in Mexico, of the rich and powerful. You know, we're talking about, um, I think it was Salinas' son, right? Um, I mean, major, major um, people in their like sort of 30s, 40s, 50s had become part of Nexium. And um, the fact that some of those women had ended up with brands, um, in their pelvic regions, I think is the best way to say it. Uh, you know, depending how you felt about the brand, you would do, use a different word. Like Keith would say, it's a little hip brand, uh, you know, bikini line brand, something like that, where you would normally have a tattoo. Um, I mean, maybe like some people would have a tattoo right there. Yeah. I don't show uh, mine often. Right. No, I, I keep mine, <laughs> keep mine covered up. Um, yeah. So, you know, they had been in Monterey and the Frank Report, which is a blog that had, has covered Nexium and had a lot to do with Nexium um, getting into the trouble that they got into. Um, the Frank Report had been reporting that um, some of the women who were Mexican, um, who were in Nexium, who received the brands, the, the families of those women and other people involved in Nexium were outraged that Keith and Claire um, had appeared in Monterey in some ways, you know, seeking asylum, right? Um, seeking protection. And they had left Monterey and gone to Guadalajara, where another, um, I wouldn't say group, but a few prominent Nexium members had set them up in Guadalajara with an, with an apartment and were trying to help them. You touched on this feeling before, but it, it's something that really fascinates me, which is that that compromised position of the journalist where you are supposed to go in and be completely honest and say what happened, but at the same time you have to negotiate. And you see that obviously with cults and also with gangs and other kinds of people engaging in nefarious activity. And with the US government and with Hollywood. Sure. Uh, yes. I mean, we live in a society where people think that everybody wants their 15 minutes of fame and they're just desperate to talk to a reporter. And actually, the truth is nobody talks to a reporter until they've set like uh, a bunch of conversations with that reporter first. You know, there's, I mean, you could get people on a reality show, but <laughs> you can't get them in the newspaper just by calling them anymore. You know, that's completely changed in the last 10 years is 
you know, the whole everybody's become so much more savvy about what it means to have an article written about you and your Google, you know, alerts and blah, blah, blah. And so how do you, do, do they they make you promise did they make you promise things and then how do you feel because obviously you're going to make them look bad i guess part of you knows that uh and some of them are not just evil people some of them are maybe just true believers who are going to be made to look bad how do you feel going into that well uh I mean, there's so many different schools of thought on it, right? There's the Janet Malcolm school of thought, which is like every journalist who's not a moron knows that what they do is morally indefensible. And you go there and you are listening, but you really are always going to tell your own story. Then there's, you know, the other side of it, which is that, you know, being a journalist and going in some place with an open mind, a beginner's mind, is 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 really essential to the truth of stories being told. And I wouldn't say that I went there thinking, oh, I'm going to tell a story about how evil these people are. You know, I went there saying, like, I don't understand this. You should explain to me what your point of view is. And I'll mix it with what I know to be true. And, you know, we'll come out with something that feels real, that feels true. Um, but I didn't I didn't know. Um, I'm, I'm used to people taking me up on that. Let's put it that way. I'm, I'm used to people saying, that's what I want. I want you to come in and help explain to the world what the truth is here. And instead, with Nexium, there was like a concerted effort among everybody who was still in the inner circle to um, sink stories, to lie to me completely, to try to lead me down all sorts of paths that were not true. Um, and, you know, th this is this is, you know, what happens with a cult, I guess. I didn't quite think that they would be that coordinated. And, um, you know, perhaps I was more, uh, uh, I was more, you know, optimistic about my chances just through talk therapy, which is what I do as a reporter, um, to try to get them to open up and tell me what was really going on. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. 
Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. So hard though, because it's like part of, like I say, part of them are true believers, then part of them are just trying to hide stuff. I've had a similar thing where uh, somebody from a cult reached out to me recently. It was the one called the Lighthouse Cult or something like that. Uh, and wanted me to come and talk to them. And it was a really weird thing where I felt like, well, look, I can come and do that, but you're not going to look good. Uh, it's not going to be good for you. Um, and you do find yourself in a weird position because um, from my perspective, well, it could be a good story, uh, but do I want to get mixed up in this? And then there's my own safety and my family's safety. It's a whole thing. So I imagine these things are going through your mind. What's going through your mind when you're sitting with uh, Keith Ranieri, the head of Nixium, the founder, who... I, you know, you're not supposed to diagnose from afar, but it's probably a psychopath. You're sitting across from him. What did, what sense did you get? Oh, God. I mean, I would say, first of all, like once I talked, you know, before I talked to Keith, I talked to a lot of people who told me how Keith was the most amazing man in the world, right? So I was ready to meet the most amazing man in the world. That's who I thought I was meeting. And I... I felt that in he, your in your mind was it Tom Cruise like that kind of personality <laughs> the charisma yeah well I just assumed there was charisma you know someplace between David Koresh and Tom Cruise right uh, mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. something that drew, drew you in when you met him that you couldn't resist and I found him to be one of the most repellent people I've ever met um, you know physically repellent. Um, he was, you know, uh, in the interview, very hard to follow. I felt that the that he he was trying to think through how to lead me astray while I was talking to him, and I didn't like. It made no sense. It was like no rational person could listen to the way you're talking and think that you're trying to give me honest answers here. Like, and I mean, I stopped the interview at one point and said, like. You need to tell me the truth because, you know, right now people think that there was no purpose for Nexium other than bringing women to your bed. Like, are you going to let that stand? And, um, you know, there was just no real, like, reasoning with him. Um, and, yeah, I found it very disturbing. And I think that, um, 
speaking with him was the moment where I realized something was really deeply awry here because he was so Wizard of Oz that there was, like, I couldn't understand how anybody could even be around this guy for 10 minutes, less spend 10 years following what he was doing, following his diet plan, you know, living with him in this weird development in Albany, donating all their money or whatever, however they gave it to him. I mean, it just, it's, it really shook my sense of what was real and what was true. Wow. What kind of thing was he saying then? When you said that to him about, you know, getting women to come to your bed and all of that, what what's his response to that? I mean, he said, you know, not only would I not have a sex slave, I wouldn't want one. And, you know, with the millions of dollars I've had, uh, I could buy a lot of fancy sex. Um you know, he, I had to push him to even say that he had a relationship with one woman in like the sex slave group that was called DOS, that the people who were in the inner circle referred to as a sorority. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I mean, this is, so I have this podcast out called The Infamous. And on that podcast, you can hear all of this tape that I'm talking about, um, all the interviews with Keith, with Claire Bronfman, with Allison Mack. Um, you know, basically their their story that they were pushing to me was that uh, Keith had nothing to do with the branding. He didn't even know about it. You know, he knew a little bit about it, but he certainly had not told anybody to do anything and that this was all Allison's idea. There's recordings, aren't there, that that run counter to that, aren't there? The, the recordings of um, him saying, you know, we should maybe brand people, and Alison Mack is saying, okay, and then he says more stuff about it, and she says, okay. Uh, well, yeah, there's a recording, you know, that was entered into evidence in the courthouse. And yes, that that is a recording, uh, which is, you know, really deeply disturbing, Um you know, Keith, Nexium members uh, recorded Keith, right, when he was um, saying anything to them because, you know, they didn't want to get something wrong. One of his directives wrong, and he's the smartest man in the world. They should record him for posterity, right? This is all just a feed into Keith's ego. And Allison and, and Keith are on a walk, and Allison is tape recording this. And um, Keith says how he wants the branding done and says, perhaps they should say, um, uh, master, it would be an honor to be branded or whatever. You know, he says, like, tell them this or whatever. You figure it out. You can figure it out. I'm very busy right now. So I've given you some directives. Take it from here. Um, and, you know, one of the saddest things of that listening for me, listening to that recording was um, how childlike Allison sounds because you know this cult at 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 the at at the the core of it was about reducing women to sort of tween adolescent mindset through controlling their eating, controlling their exercise, controlling what they thought about, and making them um, into you know, whether you want to call it slaves for Keith or just like 13-year-olds 
who were obsessed with Keith. And like, you know, I had this experience, I'm sure some other women have, like you're 12, 13, 14 years old, you haven't really had a boyfriend, but there's one guy that all the women like. For us, you know, like it was the guys, the guy that we would talk to on the phone, right? The guy that would always call up and want to chat and he was our friend and he was the guy and he was like the one guy that the five or six girls would be friends with. And who knows if you were really interested in kissing this guy, but he was like the guy, you know? He was like, all the other boys were just still boys and they were playing with each other and there'd be like one or two guys who wanted to hang out with girls as friends, right? Um, and I feel that Keith positioned himself as that guy and sort of m created a situation where all the women were in competition. You know, they had a 13-year-old mindset. And they were in competition to um, get his affections. And we're talking like 20, 20, 25 women like this who were in many cases living in Albany, right near him, doing everything he said. Um, you know, and of course, later we found out some of them were underage. Right. I didn't know that. So under 18. Yeah, well, so when I was in Mexico, I met um, I met Claire, right? I spent a lot of time with Claire. And I also spent time with uh, Keith. And when I went to the apartment to meet Keith, there was a woman there who did not seem authorized to speak with me named Mariana. And she had a baby. And this was Keith's baby, I was told. And it was indeed Keith's baby. And Mariana was one of three sisters. Um, Keith had slept with all the sisters. Uh, one of the women, um, you know, he raped when she was 15. The other woman, um, Daniela, he uh, felt was in an ethical breach with him and encouraged her to stay in her room and think about what she had done and write these various papers. And everybody was always writing papers for Keith and blah, blah, blah. And um, she was not physically bound in that room, but she stayed in that room for two years. Two years. Wow. Yeah. Oh and so God. some of this stuff was not known, right? Like some of this stuff came out at the trial. Um, you know, I think that there were a lot of people surprised by a lot of what they heard at the trial because people knew that a lot of stuff bad was going on. But I don't think, uh, you know, Nexium was a system of secrets and it was all about where you were on the hierarchy. And there was this one hierarchy that was with sashes and everybody, I'm a green sash, I'm a yellow sash. And it was all according to, you know, where you are on the path to enlightenment and how many people you brought into the group in that MLM way. But there was actually a secret hierarchy also. And the secret hierarchy was about who was sleeping with Keith, who was in favor, who, you know, was out of favor, <laughs> like who knew what about Keith's real life. Um, so there, there was a lot of that going on too. It sounds, to some extent, um, a little bit tribal. I can sometimes get a little bit um, over the top in, with my enthusiasm for sort of evolutionary psychology because I know it's not a science as such; it's all theory and stuff. But you can what you explained about sort of everybody sort of competing over this this person and its status or, um, and all that kind of thing, things, um, all those kinds of things. So, but the the difficult thing I think for anyone watching. Or, or hearing about Nixium to understand, I guess, is Alison Mack. Because why did this actress who, you know, I suppose she was what maybe what you'd call a C-list actress or something, 
no different in a sense to Meghan Markle uh, in in terms of status. And one of them went and married Prince Harry and sort of elevated her status, no matter, you know, and people are very divided about her and that's fine and irrelevant. Uh, but Alison Mack has gone to this like creepy guy that you've you've described. Like what has driven her there? Oh my God. Uh <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 sad, right? I mean, she described herself yeah. as a seeker to me as, you know, was like, so she could have gone to India, you know, and been in Rajasthan and been doing yoga and found, you know, a, a truly enlightened person there to follow. And she somehow found this guy. Um, and at the time that she found him, you know, the Bronfmans were very visible in Nexium and they had a plane and they were flying uh, Allison around and she was getting the full court press from all the inner circle people because they realized she was valuable, right? Because it was, you know, Keith was an Ayn Rand acolyte and everything was about status and everything was about like, you know, dog eat dog. So she was seen as a very valuable potential recruit and she, they really rolled out the red carpet for her. He appears to have studied um, Scientology a lot as well. There's a lot of stuff he, he took from Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard and that Scientology uh, celebrity center they have. Right, right. Yeah, there was a whole idea of going clear, um, which they didn't use that phrase, but yeah. Um, I mean, most of Keith's ideas were just cribbed from someplace else. Um, but I mean, I think that Allison really was a puppet of Keith's. And I think that she ultimately was used and abused by him, but she also used and abused other women in the group. And that's why she received a punishment, like from the court. I mean, there are many other women who were in the same line of the sex slave group as Allison, who had the same responsibilities. But um, what I've heard that was that Allison was cruel and gleeful in her cruelty. And she was also much more involved in the sex-related aspects of the group than some of the other women and in encouraging um, you know, women to get sexually involved with Keith, which is where the sex trafficking comes in. Okay, that's really interesting then, because uh, I guess when you started talking about that just now, I'm thinking, okay, well, we've got that really blurred line between perpetrator and victim, and there are very relatively few perpetrators who haven't in some way in, in their lives been victims, and that's a really difficult thing for us to grapple with. Uh, and then that sort of taking pleasure in, in the cruelty sort of flipped, uh, flipped the script in my mind, what you've just, what you've just said. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I wasn't there, so I can't like totally, you know, judge it. But this is certainly what I've heard and what what the court believed was that there was, you know, this aspect of Nexium where all, all of these women were victims of Keith, but he also used them as tools. And if they were going to be very sharp tools, then they would be punished for that. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions why Nikki Klein, who was another prominent actress, who was actually married, remember, to Alison Mack um, in a sort of green card marriage. Um, Keith encouraged the two of them to marry. Um, Nikki Klein remains free to this day and is 100% in Keith's, you know, POV still, is giving interviews talking about 
Keith and and how great he is is heavily featured in the Val um, season two. Um, there's other women like that too, you know. Uh, and you know, this is the court system, right? Some people get punished and other people don't. Um, but there's nobody, you know. Even though, you know, in my my conversations with Allison Mack, she was lovely to me. There's nobody who I've spoken to who was not um, very disturbed by her, who who had dealt with her within Nexium. And, you know, we have to remember she's an actress, so she can act different ways. Oh, psychopath. They're all psychopaths. Hey, well, Nikki- I don't know if they're all psychopaths. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, you know, this is like Milgram experiment stuff, right? Yeah. Which is like, yeah. what what will people do when they're put in certain situations? And um, I I would be comfortable calling Keith a psychopath. I think he has that dark triad. I do. Um, I don't know about all the other people. I don't have enough, you know, information about them. Okay. Nikki Klein is, so the woman you mentioned before who who married um, um, Alison Mack, um, she like reached out to me um, to potentially do an interview on this podcast. And then I, I replied saying that would be great. Do you want to do it? And then she didn't um, get back again. Do you think that would have been interesting? She's still denying even now a lot of the stuff about Nixium, I guess. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know. You know, I I think that it's hard. Like, do you want to interview Squeaky from, 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 you know? Do you want to, I mean, as a journalist, I would talk to a lot of different people because I do think there's always something to be gained. Um, However, you know, there's also a different school of thought, which is platforming people. Um, and do you want to platform somebody um, who has that point of view? I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Um, I think the problem for me with not being knowledgeable enough about the subject to be able to refute the things that she um, alleges. Right. Yeah. That would be an issue, but if if she's if she's up for it though, then um, maybe I'd do it because you got to live, you got to do things, you got to you know just from a selfish point of view, I just like doing interesting things. So right, it's I just that know. if you you know are helping, um, yeah, sort of, don't help. yeah, you don't want to help. And then like there's people who are very traumatized by this whole thing who you know I think didn't like the story that I wrote either because it felt it was platforming them because, you know, I came from the perspective that I always come from, which is, you know, let's make this complicated. Look, people are good and bad. They've got good and bad parts of them. Let's portray it all. Um, but, you know, I I don't know. I haven't thought that deeply about that. But, um, you know, I, I did have somebody uh, offer me another interview with Keith. Um, while the trial was going on, and I did say no to that. Interesting. Yeah, I know what you mean. It it, it is a really complicated. There are just so many ethical issues with being a journalist, I guess, and it's it's just a minefield. And I think people don't always entirely realize that. And and then also you get to a point as well as a journalist where you get your well, we spoke about it before. You're compromised to an extent. You know, if do you, at what point do you want 
the story for ethical reasons and at what point is this like what's my job I don't ask people in other jobs if they're doing things for ethical reasons you know did you make that financial transfer for ethical reasons did that you know it's I made it so I could afford a mortgage on my new house or whatever it might be you know and, and then we it, oh, it's complicated isn't it what's going on now with 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 them all is are they just did Alison Mack face time and is she out and then Keith is like in forever is that right Keith is in forever, 120 years. He appealed and he mm. lost. Um, Allison is in for three years. Um, she, I would think, is either in a halfway house or on her way there. Um, Claire uh, Bronfman, I think her sentence was 81 months. Um, and, you know, Claire Bronfman didn't know anything about the sex slave group. Um, she was... Um, convicted on other charges. And so I think there's been some shift in terms of her status, uh, not as a sex offender. And she, um, you know, will get some, some, you know, reduced time for good behavior. Um, and uh, yeah, and a few other people also ha uh, receive time. Imagine being in prison. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Actually you know, they're, they're, I mean, Keith, this is Keith's life, you know, and I guess the question is, is like, was it worth it? Um, that would be, you know, the question I would want to ask him, like, was it worth it? Because you got 15 years of something that, you know, no person ever gets, which is access to tens of millions of dollars, a huge group of people, uh, like, hanging on your every word, thinking you're the most ethical man alive, um, you know, a million women that you bedded, uh, abused, you know, really psychically, emotionally, physically, you were behind this whole branding thing with your initials were branded into women's bodies and they didn't know they were your initials. They thought it was like some chakra thing. Like, what do you, was it worth it? Because now you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. And it would never answer that question. But that is what I would want to know. Like, do you, are the fantasies and the memories that you have of that time of getting your, you know, your dream as a psychopath, were they worth doing the rest of your life in prison? Presumably not, because you sort of live in the present, don't you? So I think um, he's probably very miserable. Yeah, he's probably miserable. And, you know, I'm not a very carceral person, but in this case, I think it's probably, it was probably justified to put him in prison for that time. Because, you know, when you when you take each one of the things he did, you're like, oh, that's not so bad. So he told people to starve themselves. Like, whatever, everybody wants to be skinny. But you start to put together the <laughs> entire constellation of what he did, and it's just like, yeah. oh, my God, this person should burn. Like, this is insane, you know? Um and, you know, that's not to say that I think, like, uh, you know, that everybody who is associated with him should have the same. I do believe that there's, you know, there's got to be some some uh, second chance at life for some of these other people. Sure. I wonder if Alison Mack will get acting again. I mean, Louis C.K. is back doing stuff. Mel Gibson's been in films, right? Maybe Alison Mack stands a chance. Yeah, I, I have no idea what people would think. Um, you know, I think that she was very, very quiet 
Um, she hasn't, as my knowledge, spoken to a reporter since she spoke to me, and that was 2007, 2018, um, 2017 and 18. Um, I think that, um, I mean, this is a, an order of magnitude um, much different than a Louis C.K. situation. And I would assume she blames herself. Um, and there's a lot of self-hate and shame and all this stuff that I don't, I don't know if she's going to want to go back into the, you know, frying pan of the, the culture that's going to talk about how she's a monster. You know, um, I think a lot of those guys crave the attention so much that they need it. And it doesn't even matter what people are saying about them. It's just the fact that they've been deplatformed and put to the side that is so frustrating for them, you know. Um, and I think she's in a quite different situation than that. Another topic that you've done is um, on, on Infamous is Girls Gone Wild. And Girls Gone Wild makes me think of some sort of, I'm not sure if it's wet t-shirt competitions or porn or something. I'm not entirely sure what it it's is. It's sort That's of like in the man. middle of those two things. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's some sort of weird thing that probably doesn't even exist nowadays, that kind of thing. There was like on TV channels at night, it would maybe it would go on. It was like a gardening TV channel and then at 11 o'clock it becomes this other thing or or, or whatever. But uh, what, it, what what is it then? Yeah, tell me what Girls Gone Wild is and was. Yeah, so Infamous, so this podcast series that I'm making is based on a lot of my old reporting, um, which, you know, I've been a magazine journalist for over 20 years, and these are all the stories, sort of like my, you know, greatest hits, for for lack of a better word, like my my biggest stories, um, and, and getting back into all the tape that I took at that time, which is sort of like really riveting to listen to. Yeah, I think it's not cool. just for me, but for other people. It's mm -hmm. a little dirty, right? Because it all comes, you know, off like a mini cassette recorder. But um, so, you know, in the early 2000s, I was assigned this story to go on tour with Girls Gone Wild. Um, and the founder of Girls Gone Wild, Joe Francis, who is currently uh, sort of a semi-fugitive in Mexico. He is... Um, you know, he's got open warrants for him in the U.S. And if he comes back and, and he's driving and he's speeding, he will be arrested. Um, but he could probably get into the U.S. Uh, and so he, uh, you know, at the time seemed to be a um, sort of like the Gen X smut peddler um, who was connected with all these celebrities best friends with Paris Hilton, uh, you know, just sort of like out and about on the scene, sort of like, you know, his generation's Hugh Hefner. Um, but over time, it became clear that uh, a lot, you know, as as so often with men, uh, a lot of what was going on in terms of Girls Gone Wild actually on the scene in Florida where they were tape recording women, you know, taking off their shirts and flashing in the street turned into Joe sleeping with a lot of those women. Um, and their... Uh, in particular is a, you know, a vignette that happened in Florida where two underage girls gave him a handjob and he was brought up on charges 
um, there. And then there have been like multiple other issues with him over the years in terms of assaults. Um, and so he, you know, was really like living out his sexual fantasy by tape recording these women flashing. And then it was very easy to get into conversations with women about, hey, do you want to come back to my hotel, um, which is right here. Um, and, you know, indeed, when I when I was with him, I had actually gone to sleep <laughs> because I thought I would go to sleep because this was enough of this debauchery for a night. Um, he uh, had um, bringing up what he told me were two strippers to his room to have sex. And they, uh, you know, didn't have the right wristband to get up to the hotel or whatever. This hotel hated him. The entire town wanted him thrown out, right? Because he was seen as a scourge on their town. And he was arrested um, that night. And um, so, you know, the... Uh, you know, that like a lot of the writing that I do and um, stories I've done over the years are about, um, you know, sexual assault, sex, consent, and like what is consent? Um, how do power dynamics work in gendered relationships? You know, I wrote a book about um, sexual assault on American college campuses called Blurred Lines, um, which is, you know, Blurred Lines is sort of like a cheeky way of looking at it, but um, it's, you know, I uh, sort of write to a general audience. Like I'm a, you know, feminist writer who basically writes to a general audience. A lot of my writing is for men. Um, and I try to do it from a perspective of like meeting people where they are and not um, not trying to, you know, uh, be derogatory towards men or finger pointing or assign blame, but try to look at like, what are the power dynamics in this relationship that makes a woman say like, this is sexual assault um, when you think you haven't done anything wrong. So like, that's the most fascinating thing to me is this idea of like both people believe fervently in their hearts that was not sexual assault, that was consensual sex, and the other person says that was not consensual sex, that was sexual assault. Well, what the hell is going on here? And I think it's just like a fascinating topic that the nation, you know, the American nation, and look, Brits too. I mean, all sorts of people have been nah, pulled us. into, no, of course not. That never happens there. Um, no. You know, this this question and the question of, you know, what does a generation that's younger than me, because I'm in my 40s, think is sexual assault? Because a lot of it is also linguistic in terms of like, well, well, how we define these things. And and so, yeah, so I've done, um, you know, a lot of stuff about that. It's really interesting, um, and it's certainly a topic of our time. We seem to be getting to grips with these things, and it's it's such a difficult one as well because though you've talked, of course, about the ethics and what is right and wrong, and then there's the law as well and how you prove things. It's so complicated. Um, yeah. You keep getting as well. There are so many people that I think like, hey, they seem cool, and then they do these things. There's that guy, Andrew Callahan, made loads of big news. Um, he's a big YouTuber mm -hmm. uh, recently. Do you, do you know about that yeah, one? Yeah, mm -hmm, a little bit. He's like a... So the audio listeners, the audio podcast listeners probably won't have heard of him, but people watching on YouTube probably will have because he's huge on YouTube. And then he, I think what's really frustrating is he was all about the social justice. There's a particular kind of guy 
who's like a big social justice advocate. There are loads who are also just nice, you know, don't get me wrong. There are, but there's also this, and they're like these big, they're the face of the thing and they're holding a microphone up and saying, are you, a, they're really moralizing. And then there was like, it wasn't just like one or two, it was like dozens of women coming forward saying like, mate, this is not okay what you did. Uh, and it is, I mean, you say blurred lines and I know you, you, it's become a silly term because of that song. Uh, but it's, I think it's quite apt, isn't it? Because right. it is something we're, we're grappling with at the moment, but he clearly was on the wrong side of it. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so complicated and there's a lot of like wolves in sheep's clothing out there, you know. Um, I mean, I think the Aziz and Sari case is like really continues to be the defining case in terms of what, where are you on the spectrum of this, you know, this conversation because, you know, there's some people who say Aziz did not rape anybody. Like that's just a jerk. Like that's just a guy being a jerk. Um, and then there's, you know, women who will say absolutely Aziz was at fault and should not have a career. And, um, you know, I, do I don't you know. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel still like I'm sort of in the middle on that one. But what I do mm. know is that, you know, when you talk to people about like, like who actually know the guys who are accused, it's always the guys who have a reputation as being jerks. Like there's something going on, like enough women will say like, I didn't like that experience, you know? And so, you know, as much as people want you to believe, as much as people want you to believe that the it's the nice guys who are being like attacked by these horrible harpy feminists, like, it's often not the nice guys. Now, does that mean that in a court of law, they are rapists? No, it doesn't. And does it mean they should be thrown out of their universities? I tend to believe no on that as well, because I think like the worst thing to do, the guy who has problems with women and acts out, you know, sexually towards them is put them in their mom's basement so they can like vibe with other incels on YouTube. Like, that's the worst possible thing, you know? So, uh, I don't know. I think I think there's something there, but I also think that, like, women in their 20s um, really, like, if, if they're into this topic, will define consent in a way that is so narrow that you can, like, put a, a foot wrong, like, no matter what you do, you know? Yeah. It's a shame, isn't it? Because I suppose... Uh, sex is supposed to be kind of abstract and spontaneous uh but it's such a complicated thing i think i think what frustrates a lot of people and frustrated me i mean aziz ansari for anyone who doesn't know he's he was in flight of the concords he's a, a, a comedian and he was uh, he had his own show which was very similar to louis ck's show uh it was like and in those shows they're both presented as like the middle ground centrist nice uh, person who can see both sides of everything and is really responsible and nice. So for both of them, I mean the Louis stuff. And, and by the way, because if people are listening, going, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I would still watch, and I did watch Louis's latest thing because it was just really funny. And I don't want to punish people forever. And I, and I agree with you as well. It's no good and uh, uh, to, to push people into these corners where they just are like, okay, you're out of the tribe now. And now, you know, that's not helping anyone. It's the same with, you know, terrorism. It's the same with any kind of extremism. When you just push them away, 
you don't get to bring them back into society. So who's who's that helping? But it was particularly disappointing, I guess, to see Louis, to see Aziz Ansari, when when they had so portrayed themselves as as this kind of moral arbiter, and the same with Andrew Callahan as well. I'd almost rather just like a you know an old fashioned psychopath, just one of the old, just <laughs> like hey, I'm a horrible Andrew Tate. You know, right. I'm doing a horrible thing. At least I'm honest about it. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think. It, it, <laughs> You know, then there's the question of if if that public persona has also factored into, um, I mean, I would put Louis C.K. almost in a different group than Aziz, you know, because there are a lot of women on the Louis C.K. side, like, whereas Aziz, I think there's not as many. Um, Is that right, then? Is that, so, so you, because I don't know enough about it, so, so Okay, I mean, I'm making this up now, but <laughs> that, I don't know. I mean, my my understanding is this is it was mostly this one oh, so, so, story, this one babe.net okay. story. Yes. Um, but I could be, well, I can go. I think that's look true. But, and just for um, people who don't know about that story, it was it was this weird one. As you say, you described it perfectly, actually. But like, it was a date, and and uh, he 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 ordered the wine without asking if she wanted it, and it was things like that where people are like, well, this he's acting like a jerk. But this isn't illegal. Or, and then some people are saying, well, you know. I think the bedroom, he acted a little worse mm. than that. But yes, it's not illegal. I mean, I, I think the question is this, like, do we want to only define things by legality, right? Or do we also want to say, well, what is moral? Um, and I think you can say that Aziz was not acting in a way that, like, anybody would want somebody to act towards their daughter, right? Like, you would be really pissed if this was your daughter in this situation. And so, but, you know, also, like, the, I mean, part of the reason why guys try to be successful in life and try to, you know, and you could say for women, too, is because they want, they want status, they want power, and sometimes they want sexual power, and they want, like, a buffet of women in front of them. And, you know, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Like, so, um, you know, what happens to you as a man who doesn't have a great history with getting a lot of women and then you become a celebrity and all of these women want to be with you? Like what happens in your brain and how does that manifest? I mean, that's part of the conversation too. Where can people get your podcast? Yeah, so Infamous is on all platforms. So Apple Podcast or uh Spotify and yeah, you just search for infamous. I think there's another one called Infamous America. That's not it. It's um infamous inside America's biggest okay. scandal. Don't look at the other one. It's terrible. Just look at infamous. <laughs> Vanessa, thank you so much for right. being on the edge. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Vanessa Gregoriadis. Go follow her on Twitter. Go and get listen to the infamous podcast, Inside America's Biggest Scandals. It's great, really in-depth, old school in that sense, reporting, but but new school in, in how well it's put together. So go have a listen to that. It's called Infamous. Um, and I hope you enjoyed it. Big episodes are coming up. Like I say, we've got Teddy Rose about the Moonies. Uh, that's on patreon.com slash Andrew Gold. You can merge it with your Apple podcasts and all these other things. So it's as if you were just getting it there. Collier Landry talking about his father killing his mother. Paul Bloom next week, back on the podcast, one of the world's preeminent psychologists, just talking about 
psychology, the psychology of race and evolutionary theory and all sorts of things. So I can't wait for that one. See you guys there.